0: We started looking at Revelation 7 last Sunday, and we looked at a few introductory things when it comes to this chapter. And so, this first part that's on your lesson guide is just basic review. Uh, And of course, if you'd like to look more at it, um, all of that lesson, really all of our lessons from Revelation, have been uploaded to sermon audio. You're welcome to look at those uh, just to kind of even review where we've been. Uh, So, if you remember, the first thing that we considered last Sunday was the purpose of Revelation 7. And we actually have a twofold purpose. Uh, that we can consider as we come into this chapter. And the first thing, uh, the first purpose is that it actually brings an answer uh, to that that critical question that we were left with at the very end of chapter 6. And, of course, we need to remember that when the original uh, manuscripts were written, the autographs of Revelation, really all of the New Testament and even the Old Testament, we didn't have chapter divisions, we didn't have verse divisions. And so immediately following the question, who shall be able to stand?, we find the answer given to us in this section. And so, of course, that's one of the purposes of Revelation 7. But also, uh, I think another purpose is that it brings assurance to those who are able to stand. Uh, So those who are going to go through the trials and troubles and even tribulation that we find all throughout the book of Revelation, this shows that there are some who can stand. And those are especially those marked by God to belong to him, and of course, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, twofold purpose of Revelation 7. The second thing that we consider was the period of Revelation 7, and one of the things that has been this chapter has been described as is an interlude, uh, because it is a uh, provides a break in the action between the sixth and the seventh seals. Of course, the sixth seal ends in chapter 6, verse 17, and then uh, all the way in chapter 8, we find the seventh seal being opened. And so there's a break in the action, and this has been described as an interlude. And one of the purposes for this interlude is it gives both John and his readers um, not only a break from the action, but a glimpse at what has already occurred. Uh, so we have a look back at some things, as well as a look forward to some things that will occur in the course of Revelation. Uh, of course, the contents of Revelation 7 helps us to place even the very period of the first part of this chapter in that it would be something that uh, occurs between the fifth and the sixth seal. So uh, the sealing of the servants of God is what transpires before the great tribulation. So those who are the servants of God, those who are the believers in Christ will be able to withstand those, uh, whether it is in life or even in death, God preserves them in their faith. And so that's kind of where I place it there. Uh, Obviously there are others that would disagree with that, Um, But I think that's probably, when you look especially at the content of chapter 7, that's probably the best place uh, to put the first part of chapter 7. But then we also considered the plan of Revelation 7. And there are two basic ways of looking at the two groups that are mentioned. Of course, uh, the the two groups are the 144,000, which we see in the first part. And that is uh, referred to there in verse 4. And then, of course, the second group is found in verse 9, which is the great multitude. So... There's been a lot of ink spilled and trying to figure out who these two groups are and the connection between them, and really you can kind of classify them in two different ways, so um, two different suggested plans. Some see a progressive connection between the 144,000 and the great multitude, Uh, so basically those who would hold to this view would say that the 144,000 believers who are sealed by God will actually lead to the salvation of a great multitude. And that great multitude is seen, you know, in, in heaven, and that great multitude is seen experiencing all the bliss of the new heavens and the new earth. And so we'll look at those as we come to them. Uh, but there are others who see it as a symbolic connection, so that the 144,000 and the great multitude are actually the same group, uh, but really from two different perspectives. And and one of the reasons why they would consider that is because of something that we saw in chapter 5, uh, when John heard about the line of the tribe of Judah, and then saw the lamb of god so he saw one thing heard about another and yet they were still talking about the same person the lord jesus and so there's a few other places in revelation where you see that feature and and they would hold this is one of those where he hears a number but he sees a multitude he hears about 144,000, which would be a very symbolic number and then of course it would refer to the great multitude Uh, so the the group that john hears is the number from god's perspective and again, we'll look at that uh, likely next Sunday. And then John sees the nature of the group from his own perspective, uh, verse 9, of all kindreds and of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. Um, so those are the three background points to kind of keep in mind as we get through Revelation 7. Uh, we will look more into them as we move forward through this chapter. Uh, but before we do, uh, we first come to what is the title of this lesson, the, the five angels that we find in verses one through three, the five angels. And we can describe this as the powers of Revelation 7, the angelic powers, five angels. And so we're gonna focus on the first three verses this morning, and I'd like us to read those verses as we we move forward in this really amazing chapter. A chapter of consolation, uh, a chapter of encouragement, I think especially for John, as he just witnessed all of the things going on in chapter six, which aren't so positive, Now he has some really encouraging things from chapter 7. John writes, After these things I saw four angels, so here's the first four, standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel, there's the fifth angel, ascending from the east of the rising sun, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice, to the four angels, to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. This is a tremendous way to start this chapter. And, of course, these five angels are are God's angels. And these are angels that are really instrumental in in the progress of this chapter and really of the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, as we mentioned last time, even though there in verse 1, John writes, after these things I saw. And, of course, after these things, he's referring to the six seals that he just witnessed in chapter 6. He's not necessarily describing things in, chronico- in chronological order. He's not necessarily describing things in time. And just about every interpreter would look at this in chapter 7 and saying it's not something that happens after the seal, uh, seal 6 occurs but rather it's describing something that would happen before seal 6 occurs. Uh, some would even say that it happens before the first seal occurs. Uh, but he's not talking, it in, talking about it in chronological order in time. Again, the sixth seal that we saw in chapter 6 takes us right up to the time when the wrath of the Lamb is about to be poured out onto the rebels of verse 15. Uh, and of course, this is in line with Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We saw a little bit of that last Sunday. So the sealing of the servants of God here in verse 3 and the great tribulation that is described for us in verse 14 of this chapter would take place at some point before the events of the sixth seal. Uh, And so that's one of the reasons why we see this as an interlude. He's giving us more information that goes behind, and then he also propels us a little bit more forward toward the end of this chapter. It's better to see chapter 7 following chapter 6 in the sequence, simply, of John's vision. Uh, you know, it's kind of like if you're watching a movie or even reading a book. Uh, it's not always in chronological order. Um, the, very often they will go back, circle back, and give you more information about what you just read or about what you just saw. And so that's something that is going on here in, in these interludes. Um, what happens here in chapter 7 will also um, take place in chapter 10 and 11. There's another interlude between the 6th trumpet and the 7th trumpet. And so it seems like there's this kind of pattern, giving more information about what you just read, as well as more information about what is to follow. So this is an interlude that gives us really a bigger picture of what goes on between what I would say the fifth and the sixth seals. Uh, again, the fifth seal are martyrs of Christ saying, how long, O Lord, until this your judgment comes? And the Lord says, wait a little longer until your fellow brethren who are to be killed will join you. And chapter 7 shows us who those people are. And so again, that's where I place chapter 7, or at least the first part of chapter 7, between the fifth and sixth seals. So what does John see next in his vision? Uh, Again, verse 1 describes the four angels, right? The four angels. I saw four angels, and, and note the prominent placement of four in this verse. All right, we find it several times. I saw four angels standing on the what? Four corners of the earth holding what? The four winds of the earth, so four times, or we have four, three times in that verse, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, it is clear that these angels are true angels. Uh, They they are the true messengers of God. They are the true ministering spirits of God. Now, we have angel earlier in this book, and, and we're not so sure. You know, when we're talking about the angels of the churches, the seven angels of the churches, are they really angels? Or are they just the messengers of God in this world? Are they perhaps the leaders and the pastors of the church? Um, we're not too certain there in, in those first seven angels. Here we're pretty sure these are true angels, true ministering spirits of God that you know, God is using to do his work in this world. And of course, four is a very prominent number associated with these angels. Uh, again, we find the four angels, four corners, four winds. Four is a common number in Revelation to describe something that is complete in what we can describe as a global scale. Now, there are other numbers that tell us about completion. Uh, One common number is seven, right? And so what's the difference between seven as a number of completion and four as a number of completion? I think, again, four describes something that's complete in a global scale, Whereas seven describes something that is full and complete in a spiritually significant way. So seven is a spiritual completeness, whereas four is more of a global completeness. Um, Now, when we talk about spiritual, it doesn't necessarily have to be um, dealing with good spiritual entities, right? Because later on, we're going to find that there's a, a dragon that has seven horns. And, of course, he clearly represents the devil, and, but it's still a spiritual symbol of just how evil he is. So 4 and 7 are numbers of completion. 4 just simply brings it to earth, brings it down to our level, if you will. Um, so if you remember, back in chapter 4, uh, we met the four living ones, those four beasts in the King James, they're better translated living ones, they're up in heaven, and they seem to represent God's creation on earth. You know, we have one that looks like an angel, one that looks like a man, one looks like a calf, and one that looks like a lion. And so we would consider those to be perhaps the most noble of God's creation, and because there's four of them, they represent God's creation on a global scale. Um, so again, this is a, a significant number that describes completion in this world. So four angels... Uh, This seems to represent God's complete and universal control over his creation. So four angels in this world doing God's work for this world. All right. So this also reveals to us the great power of these angels. Uh, They've been given universal power over the natural elements of this world that are represented by the wind. So that refers to their great power. I think this also is a reminder... Um, of something that we see all throughout Revelation. It's a reminder of the link between the physical and the spiritual. You know, a lot of times we are creatures that just believe what we see. Um, But we know as Christians that there's far more than what we see. There is a spiritual reality that is behind the visible reality that we are so familiar with. And so this is the case. I mean, we're familiar with the weather. My wife and I were talking on the way here, and we were talking about, you know, are we supposed to have, you know, more wintry weather, or are we going to have an early spring? And I said, well, what did the groundhog say, right? And she said, well, the groundhog didn't say anything, because groundhogs can't, can't talk. <laughs> I said, well, what did the groundhog show then, demonstrate? And I think you said that it was supposed to be an early spring. So I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with the groundhog, all right? So, but we know that the groundhog really has no power over the weather, right? But clearly there's a spiritual reality behind the physical reality of even our weather. And that is God himself. And these angels represent that power, represent that ability, and represent that universal power over these creation. Um, This is also a reminder of the link between the seen and the unseen. There is more than meets our eye in this world, in God's creation. Um, And of course... This is something we can only know by means of Revelation. This book of Revelation gives us a glimpse into what is real, even behind what we think is real. And so that's where we see so much of the spiritual truth of Revelation. Um, There may be an intended contrast here um, between the four angels and the four horsemen in chapter 6. Um, some would see a link between those two, um, whereas the horsemen would unleash you know, devastation, right? And here we have four good angels, and they're in control of that devastation. Ultimately, God himself is still in control through these angels. So when you think about the four horsemen in chapter 6 and the horses, the different color horses, and you have the four um, angels. By the way, there's another feature of that four, right? because the devastation that we find in, in the first four seals are on the earth and to the inhabitants of the earth, right? And so again, we see that wholeness on a global scale. But it shows us that whatever power the horsemen have over the world, God's people can be reassured that God is ultimately in control. And again, that is one of the main purposes of Revelation 7, not just to uh, give the answer to that question, who shall send, but to reassure God's people that God's still in control. But these angels, these four angels, have great power. This power is also expressed by what we can say is their great position. John sees them, and they are standing on the four corners of the earth. So again, we have the number four again, symbolizing the world as a whole. But just because corners are used, uh, the word corner in our our thought is, you know, the corner the corner of a square or the corner of a rectangle, right? Um, in Hebrew and Greek, it's not just referring to, doesn't just have to refer to a corner, it can just also refer to the, um, the furthest bounds of something. And so that's probably the, the picture here. They're standing at the four farthest bounds of the earth. And what we see constantly through scripture is not that our earth is flat. You know, there are people, believe it or not, that are still flat earthers, you know. They, they think that this world is flat. And they would take these four corners in a very literal fashion. But I think when you consider Old Testament and New Testament revelation, the idea is more the four compasses, the four points of the compass. You know, you've got the north, south, east, and the west. And so those would be the the four furthest bounds or the four furthest extents of the earth. Now, even from John's perspective, if he was in heaven witnessing all of these things, and I think that's probably where he is when he sees a lot of this in chapter 7, what would he have seen? he would have seen what even the people at the International Space Station are seeing right now, right? They, they see the earth, and they, they do kind of see that it's, it seems flat to them, I guess. You know, they, they don't see the, the whole sphere. They're just seeing one circle of it. And the idea is that John probably has seen the, 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 the circle of the earth, and he sees those four angels at the four points of the compass of the earth, the four corners, the four farthest reaches of the earth, north, south, east, and west. Now, we're not told how big the angels must have been for John to have seen them there. (laughs) There are some other places in Revelation where it does seem like there's a a really big angel for John to be able to see, and that might be the case here. Uh, Again, that would be an image of power and control. We're just not told. We're left to conjecture conjecture that here. But the point seems to be that they have been standing there all along. Uh, To stand in this verse is in the perfect tense, which means that um, they didn't come down, John didn't see them come down to, from heaven to stand there, but rather he just looked at the earth, and there they are. They're standing there, and they've been standing there. It's not like they are in motion at this point. They're just standing there, and they have something in their hands. So they would have been seen by John as God's guardians of the earth, God's guardians of the earth who are able to execute his orders even over the natural elements of the world. And if you think back, even in the Bible. Um, when, when God destroyed, um, you know, everything in, in the world with water, he made a promise, didn't he? That he would never do that again. And has the world ever been destroyed by a flood again? No, certainly there've been localized floods, but that worldwide flood, God is still again in control, even of our weather. Go back even further. Uh, you know, and you think about, um, the, the sin of Adam and Eve and how God created the world, you know, you've talking about the sun and the moon and the stars and everything about it. He said, for the rest of eternity, or the rest as long as this world exists, God is going to keep things and preserve things the way he wants them to until his purpose and plan for this world is done. And so, in a very real sense, these four angels are God's guardians of the earth. And, and you know, it may still be the spiritual reality that we that is going on today. It's not something that we see. It's not something that we... Can, can really tangibly know, but we're given revelation that God has these guardians over this world, even now. Um, now, this also seems to be confirmed by what we can describe as the great possession of these angels. So these four angels standing on the four farthest reaches of the earth are also holding the four winds of the earth. To hold here in Revelation is another simple way to describe control. Uh, If you remember, we saw back when Jesus was holding the seven stars of the seven churches. He was holding them, grasping them. It's the exact same word here. It's a symbolic way of, of showing control over something or someone. So here these four angels are holding the four winds and they are also described in terms of the four points of the compass. Uh, This is something that we see in the Old Testament. You've got the north wind, the south wind, the east wind, the west wind. Now we wonder, how is it that John could see these four angels holding the four winds of the earth? I mean, you can't see wind. You can feel the effects of wind. You know, you can even hear some of the rushing of the wind on really, really strong, windy days. Uh, But you really can't see wind. Wind. And, and so maybe there's a symbol that he is seeing. Maybe, maybe it's a, a cloud of, or something that is in one of their hands, and that is just a, would be a symbol of that wind, or maybe even a whirlwind. Uh, there have been some, some that suggested that. But there would be something in their hands that would represent a treasury of wind. So again, John is seeing something very symbolic to reveal the invisible reality that is behind the visible. So again, ultimately, even the weather is controlled by the Lord. Isn't that a wonderful thing? God's ultimately in control of even what we would consider to be one of the most powerful forces of nature, right? Um, You know, people would describe Mother Nature has unleashed its fury on us. Praise God, God is still in control. Psalm uh, 78, 26 says, He, the Lord, caused an east wind to blow in the heaven, and by His power He brought forth in the south wind. So, Even the breath of wind, no matter how light or how powerful it is, God is ultimately in control. And he has these guardians doing his bidding even with the weather of this world. But I think there's more going on here. I don't think it's just referring to the weather. Because wind is also found in the Old Testament as a symbol. Again, this is a book of symbols. And there's a lot of meaning attached to uh, even some of the literal things that we would understand them to be talking about In the Old Testament, wind is a symbol for God's destructive judgment. And I think the men, as they went through uh, Jeremiah, actually saw this yesterday when they went through Jeremiah 51 and 52. In fact, keep your finger here and go back with me to Jeremiah chapter 51. And if someone could read for us the very first verse, uh, because, of course, this is talking about the destruction and the fall of Babylon, right? And he describes in a very symbolic way how he is going to affect that judgment. If some could read verse 1 of Jeremiah 51. So a destroying wind. So here's a picture, a symbol of judgment, of God destroying Babylon. Certainly he could have used a very, you know, a very real wind, but also the idea is the, the wind of the next empire, the Medes and the Persians coming in and destroying all of Babylon uh, and all of their pride. Uh, you see this also in Jeremiah 4. And Jeremiah 49 as well. So, so this wind in the hands of those angels would be an apt symbol for what the angels are holding back as well. They're holding back God's judgment, even God's judgment upon the inhabitants of the world, which will take place during that tribulation and ultimately end up with a great wrath of God being poured out on them, which Jesus is going to come and really wipe this earth clean once again of those who do not believe in him and those who are still worshiping the beast. So again, they're holding back God's destructive judgment. So again, we see that the literal is certainly true. God controls the weather, but ultimately, even the symbol is true. God is in control of his judgment, and he will unleash it at his time and for his purpose. But I also think this is a great picture of the great providence of God over all of his creation. Again, if God is able to control the wind through his angels... Don't you think God is able to care for his people no matter where they are in this world, no matter what storm of life you're going through? Isn't that a symbol that we often use when we're going through trials? You know, I had a storm in my life. It wasn't a a, a snowstorm. It wasn't a rainstorm. It was just a storm of trials and trouble. Doesn't God also hold those in his hand? Doesn't his angels exercise power over those as well? God is able to care for his people in a providential way, no matter where you are, no matter what storm you might face in this world. And so these four angels are seen by John, again, verse 1, holding the four winds back. Why? So that this wind, the wind that they're holding on to, should not blow on the earth, nor the sea, nor any tree. Now, there is a switch between the plural winds that they are holding in their, in their hands, there in verse 1. And now we have a singular wind. The point is, it shows that everything in John's vision at this point is completely still, completely quiet. Not even a little wisp of wind blowing from any direction. Not east, not west, not north, not south. And, and I think this might have been a way for God to encourage John, again, after all that he had seen and all that he'd heard in chapter 6. I mean, going through chapter 6, it's a moving experience. I mean, there's a lot of calamity. There's a lot of trouble. There's a lot of trials. There's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of pain and sorrow that's going on in there. And yet, here we have a time of silence, a time of quiet. Aren't we encouraged in Psalm 46.10 to be still, and know that I am God. There are times in our life where we need to experience that quiet, that stillness, knowing that God is in complete control of those times. Jesus himself in uh, Mark 4:39 was actually able to calm a storm, a literal storm, a real storm happening on the Sea of Galilee with just the sound of his voice. Remember all he had to say was, "Peace. Be still." And what happened? It was still. And so again, we have here the four angels, guardians of God's world, and even the natural elements of this world, and even God's judgment of this world. At this point, it's still. There's nothing else yet going on. But not just being a sign of peace for John, there's also a sense of foreboding. Okay, what's going to (laughs) happen? Haven't we felt that before? Okay, everything seems great right now. I am being still and knowing that God is God and I'm going through this time where it doesn't seem like any issues are happening, but something's going to happen. <laughs> there's the calm before the storm or maybe even the, the eye of the hurricane, right? So we've already experienced some of the great calamities of chapter six, you know, and if those are just general tribulations that are going on in this world right now, there's going to come a point in time where everything's going to seem still. No problems. Maybe all peace in the world. And then we're going to find even more issues that we find. Um, So again, calm before the storm. And I think this is the case because when you look at the first four trumpets, when they sound in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13, the winds of the storm are finally unleashed. Because when those trumpets sound, what is affected? Well, first of all, again, look at verse 1. What are they holding? The four winds of the earth, so that the wind should not blow on what? Three things the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now go back to, go, go over to chapter eight, all right? So we're, we're moving forward in the vision and we're coming to the seven trumpets. And if you look at verses seven through nine, we find some of the trumpets being blown. And look at what they affect. The first angel sounded, verse 7, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon what? The earth. And the third part of what? The trees was burned up, and all green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into what? The sea. And the third part of the sea became blood, and the third part of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and the third part of the ships were destroyed. And so I think we see a connection between what's going on here in the holding of the winds to prevent that storm coming on the earth and the sea and the trees. That holding is unleashed, especially when we come here to chapter 8 where we see the earth and the sea and the trees being affected. Now there are some who don't see it this way, but this is where I would begin the period of the great tribulation on the earth because this is what they've been holding back. And this is what is going to be unleashed yet. And, of course, we'll look more into that as we move forward into, the, tr- into the, the trumpets. But with the onset of these trumpet judgments, we know that the servants of God need to be sealed before the great tribulation begins. And isn't that what happens here in these verses we just read? Here we have that other angel having the great seal of, of, of the living God. And what does he do? He seals the servants of God and that's before the great tribulation commences. And so this holding it back will then be released, I believe here is referred to in verses 7 through 9, the the first few trumpets. But I think that's also why the next angelic power that we come to is, and by the way we're going to skip the purpose, alright? We'll come back to that one. Alright? So we're going to go right on to another angel. Alright? So skip the purpose of the four angels, because we're not given that quite yet in the flow of the passage. But here we have the other angel, and this is the fifth angel we come to in this chapter. John sees him in this vision, just like he saw the others. And now we have some of the same things described. We saw the position, we saw the power, we saw the possession of those other angels. Not in the same order, but kind of the same idea. Uh, We find in verse 2, the position of this other angel He's ascending from which direction? The east. So this would be the direction of the rising sun, right? So from the east. Um, Now, for the readers of John, where were they when they received the book of Revelation? Remember? To the seven churches which are in Asia, which is what we've described today as modern-day Turkey. All right? So what is east of Turkey. Yeah, quite a few. But even east of that, if you go down a little bit further south, guess where Israel is. All right, so a lot of things happen coming up from the east that provides hope. You know, especially if you're going through a great storm in the middle of the night. I mean, isn't that when all the tornadoes seem to like do their thing? (laughs) How many people are so elated when the sun starts to come up out of the east? because it provides just a, a sign of hope, a sign of help, a sign of now I can see what's going on. And that's kind of what would have happened for these churches of Asia. As they're considering all of these diff- difficulty th- difficult things, they again hear something ascending from the east. Uh, there are other times in the Bible where the east is the direction and source from which blessing flows. Um, I like how Leon Morris explains it. He says, Um, In Genesis 2, 8, Eden was in the east. So before the fall, Eden was the picture of great blessing because that was where God would meet with his people. He also says from Ezekiel 43, it was from the direction of the east that the glory came to the temple. So again, the direction and source from which blessing flows. And then uh, in, in the Gospels, in Matthew 2, the wise men came from the east with news that the Christ was born. So it's a, it's a common symbol of hope and help throughout the Bible. Um, but then also, like the other angels, John describes not just his position, rising from the east, but also his possession. Uh, what does he have in his hand? Having the, verse 2, seal of the living God. Now, um, I think Andrew and I talked about this even last Sunday. The word for seal here is the same word for all of the seals in chapter 6. But it's clearly used in a different sense. Uh, because in order to have a seal on a document in chapter 6, you have to have a, the imprint of a seal that is placed on that wax or placed on that clay. And so even in our understanding, we know that seal can take on two different meanings. You've got the impression of what that seal is made, and then, of course, you have the insignia, of that seal as well and so that's the case here uh, the seal of the living god would be like a signet ring that would have been used by by royalty by kings to make an impression on a wax seal um, again this seal is not the is not the angel's seal it's god's seal it's god's signet so again the picture is that god is the king god is the one in absolute control Also, this is the only place in Revelation where we find God described as the living God. I thought that was interesting. Now, we know that that's something that we find all throughout Scripture, that God is a living God, but it's clearly to show that He is opposed to all of the other false gods worshipped by the world. God is the only one who is life, and He is the only one that can bring life to those who are dead. This description of God was probably meant to point back to Jeremiah again, uh, Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. You don't need to turn there, but listen to what these words say. It says, but the Lord, Yahweh, the, the, the one true God, the creator God, the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. Isn't that what's going to happen when the winds are finally released by these angels on the four corners of the earth? Jeremiah 10.10 is certainly a good background verse for this. Also, the seal of the living God will be used to not only identify those who belong to him. It's it's kind of like a brand. Uh, I think um, when Angie and I were going to one of the most recent antique stores that we went to, um, I saw this this pole sticking up, and and I I picked it up, and sure enough, it was a, a brand, a cattle brand. And that's kind of the idea here. You know, it's not putting an imprint on wax like we found, found in chapter 6, but rather an imprint of God himself upon those who belong to him. And that's what a brand does. This cattle belongs to that farmer, to, to, to that rancher, to that person. It doesn't belong to anybody else. And so it happens to get lost. Everyone will know who he belongs to. And so this seal or, or brand even of the living God identifies those who belong to him But I think it also shows us that he will leave an imprint of his own nature on those who receive it. If God is a living God, what is one of the greatest signs that we belong to God? We're alive. Not physically. We're alive spiritually. He has not only branded us to belong to him, but he has actually given us part of his own nature so that because Jesus lives, we live also. So this seal shows both the possession of his servants and his protection through his life. Now, this protection does not mean that people won't physically die during the tribulation period and through the rest of the book of Revelation, even believers, because our protection is not from physical death, but from his wrath, from eternal judgment, from eternal death. So once a believer is Dead physically, they are alive more spiritually than they ever were in this world. So again, possession and real protection. And I think this too would have been a great comfort to John after all of the calamities that he witnessed in the first six seals. Um, this seal of God is very prominent in chapter 7. And again, we'll look more closely at it as we get for, uh, move forward to it. But also, we find it in chapter 9. So this isn't the only place uh, in fact, if you go over with me to chapter 9, verse 4, we're actually in the midst of the trumpet judgments. And in chapter 9, verse 4, we read that there are those who have this seal of God in their foreheads, and in this case, they're even protected and preserved from the fifth trumpet judgment of the locusts. Uh, verse 4, it was commanded that these locusts should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads, which means that those who have the seal of God in their foreheads, again, Revelation 7, will be protected from this particular judgment, from this particular trumpet. And again, we'll look at that when we come to it. But then we're also given a glimpse of the angel's power. The angel's power. If you go back to chapter 7, verse 2, we notice his power when he cries with what kind of voice? A loud voice or great voice. I mean, he's he's practically shouting in this vision. So he has a voice that exudes power and exudes authority. He uses this great voice to get the attention of the four angels and of John and of us. Uh, It's very interesting because the phrase great voice or loud voice or great sound or loud sound is found 24 times in Revelation. And it's spattered throughout Revelation. It's it's really a good study in Revelation because those are the points where you really need to pay attention. Sit up and take note of what is being said here in Revelation. And every time it's meant to get our attention. Sometimes it's used to warn people. Sometimes it's used in worship. Sometimes it's used to express woes to the world. But this angel's voice was loud and clear and unmistakable to deliver a message. And what's that message? Verse 2. It's to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. So he's crying out to those four angels, right? He's crying out to those four angels. Now this means that we're going back to the four angels, to that part of the outline, and we're given a little bit more about those four angels. And so we can add to that outline their purpose, the four angels' great purpose. So not only are they holding the winds, but they're given a certain task. This task is not just to keep on holding the winds, but eventually to unleash those winds for what purpose? To bring hurt or harm upon the elements of this world. And again, that's part of God's judgment on the people of the earth. Now, one of the reasons why we can say that their purpose is ultimately God's purpose is because of a feature that we've already seen in Revelation. Uh, Again, in verse 2, it says that these, or that he cried with a loud voice, To the four angels to whom, note the next phrase, to whom it was given. Now we've seen this a few times already in Revelation. This is described as a divine passive. You see in Revelation, when something is given to someone and we're not told who it is, the implication is that it's God. And so this is God's purpose for them. And they are to hurt and harm the earth for his purpose and according to his plan. So again, here's another one of those divine passes that you can kind of keep a lurk out for Anytime you see give. Is there a passive to it? Do you know who gave it? If not, more than likely, it's God. His hidden hand is behind everything in this book. All right, so now we come back to the outline of the other angel, right? And and, and we find his purpose. He orders the other angel's to put their purpose on hold until he has fulfilled his purpose. And what's his purpose? To seal. Again, verse 3. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea nor the trees. That's the four angels' purpose. Till we have sealed the servants of our God in their forehands. Here's another interesting switch, isn't it? In this verse, from just the angel doing the work of sealing, he could have said, till I have sealed the servants of our God, but now he says to the other angels, till we have done it. So he's actually saying, before you fulfill your purpose, come and help me fulfill my purpose. And we're going to do this because we have a real interest in the servants of God. Because these servants are the servants of our God. These five angels are sympathetic to the cause and to the plight of these servants, of God's people, because these angels are co-servants with God's people. And of course, that's something we're going to look at here in the rest of Revelation 7, but they are interested in us. Isn't that a wonderful thing that God has these spirits to express their interest as well in our our benefit and our blessing? But then again, once these servants are sealed, with God's seal, so seal here we have in a verb sense, as well as in a noun sense, then the four angels may release their winds of destruction upon the earth. And that will unleash that great tribulation on men. Um, for unbelievers, and we will see this as we move forward, for unbelievers, the great tribulation will be a time of retribution and judgment. But for believers during this time, it will be a time of refinement through suffering and even persecution. I like how um, Greg Beale puts it, and I think this is a, a good uh, way to describe what the sealing is for. The sealing enables them, the people of God, the servants of our God, to respond in faith to the trials through which they pass so that these trials become the very instruments by which they can even be strengthened in their faith. So really, what's going on even in the Great Tribulation is not much different as far as the purpose than in our day and age. Why do we suffer trials and tribulation and difficulties, general tribulation, if you will? It's so that we would respond by faith in the Lord who will help us through them so that our trials become the very instruments through which our faith is strengthened. Isn't this what Paul said? You know, he talked about his thorn in the flesh. That he prayed to God three times and he'd get rid of it, right? And what did Jesus say? My strength is sufficient for thee. My grace is made perfect, or my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so, again, that's what's going to go on there as well, certainly in a greater degree, but in the same way. And this leads us further to the angel's placement of the seal. Uh, We're going to end here. But the the placement is, according to verse 3, where? In the, the foreheads of the servants of God. That is a common symbol for consecration in the Bible, the foreheads. Um, We can look at several places in the Bible, but um, we also find it in Revelation eight times. This is the first time that something is placed on somebody's forehead. (laughs) Uh, We find it, again, in in some of those other passages I think I listed there. The background for this seal on the forehead is actually from Ezekiel. Uh, We'll look at that next time because there's some really fascinating parallels between the sealing of God of his servants in Ezekiel and the the sealing of the servants of God here in Revelation. But clearly it's a spiritual reality that is visible to God, even if it's not visible to anyone else. So what we see here is that God is reassuring his people that they belong to him. It is the seal of God that will enable his servants to persevere in their faith and remain consecrated and committed to the Lord through the time of tribulation.